Okay, we're going to wrap up our series in uh, 1 Corinthians this morning, 1 Corinthians 16. Um, while you're going there, I want to tell you something about yourself and something you may not know about yourself. Um, you're broken. We all are broken, and you already know that. What you may not know is that you're beautiful because you've been broken. Your brokenness has taught you humility, and that's a lovely quality. It's filled you with empathy, and that's what makes you loving towards others, and that's beautiful. So um, the brokenness we can't do anything about, uh, but with the seeds of the Holy Spirit planted in us, uh, we can trust God to bring forth beauty. In 1 Corinthians 16, I'm going to drop in at verse 5, where Paul says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing, I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Okay, well, the last chapter of 1 Corinthians is not as interesting as all the others we've covered so far. This is mostly business. It's like when our parents took off for a vacation and and we were of age and they gave us all the instructions. Uh, Make sure you feed the dog, you water the plants, you bring in the mail, you take out the trash and all those instructions. And that's what Paul's doing here. Um, he, he has last-minute instructions for fundraising for needy people in Jerusalem who were uh, experiencing a famine at that time. He gives them his itinerary. He uh, tells them how to treat Timothy if he should show up. He explains why Apollos isn't ready to go to Corinth. And, uh, and um, then there's these various greetings from him and those who are with him to them and to those that are with them. So what we're doing in this chapter is looking for a precious gem. Um, I have a friend who one time described garage sales as looking for a gem in the junk pile of life. And, uh, and what we're looking for the same sort of insights that Paul has brought um, in the other chapters of 1 Corinthians um, and exposed through ordinary language. And that's the challenge. Uh, He only has ordinary language to talk about extraordinary reality. And from the start, we've been listening to Paul as our spirit teacher. Our, our spiritual guide, that he is walking us into 
uh, an awareness of God, of the spirit. Um, and uh, he finds that the Corinthians and us also are, um, are preoccupied with our culture and with issues involving the church or involving movements, uh, Christian movements. And his response has been, you need to learn to see with your new eyes and to hear with your new ears. Uh, that we have this new awareness of God, that he's present at all times, he's present in all situations, and we want to have an awareness of that. And I, I will say, not just a knowledge, I can remind myself, oh yeah, God is here, but an experiential awareness where I know he's here in the same way I know that you're here. That is, I can sense your presence. Your presence I can sense with my physical senses. God's presence requires other uh, sensory perception. That sounds dangerous, but it's not. Uh, and, and so we've entitled this uh, a primer in things unseen. In uh, 2 Corinthians, which, by the way, we could do the same thing with 2 Corinthians, and it'd almost be like, you know, 102, uh, spirituality 102. In 2 Corinthians, he says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And, and that's what he's been helping us to do through 1 Corinthians, is, is to look at the things that are unseen. Now, obviously, that's, that's a contradiction. How can you look at the unseen? But again, it has to do with a new perception, a new consciousness, uh, an awareness of things unseen. Okay, in verses 8 and 9, Paul was in a situation that was almost ideal. I say almost ideal. Uh, any minister or missionary would be excited about this prospect. He says, a wide door for effective work has been opened. Oh, a, a wide door. It's not like, oh, we had to squeeze through this narrow opening. We, we had to pry it open and, and uh, use heavy-handed sales techniques like we're taught to do in evangelism classes. Uh, you know, do the cold call. And uh, now, my grandfather was great at this. And I remember seeing him pray for my uncle's friends. They were a rowdy group, but he would not allow my, my uncle, who was like six foot three and uh, a real uh, scrapper, he would not allow him to leave the house without praying for him 
first, praying for his safety and so on. And if Bill's friends, Uncle Bill's friends were there, he'd be praying for them too. They'd have to stand there and bow their heads. Um, Grandpa would get on an elevator, and if anyone else was on it, he'd turn and he'd look at, at them and say, what's your final trip going to be, up or down? <laughs> A real winsome personality. Anyway, um, he, he didn't mind narrow opportunities, you know, uh, constricted opportunities. He could make them work. But Paul said a wide uh, open door is here for us uh, of effective work. You know, this, you know, people are responding. This is going really well. <clears throat> and uh, if that were all that Paul had to deal with, that would be ideal. But like I say, it was almost ideal because the truth is nothing on this planet is ideal, at least not for very long. The kind of work that God has us doing will face the same things that Paul faced. He says that this great door is open, but there are many adversaries. Um, the work that God has us doing in the world will create adversaries. And sometimes uh, those adversaries will be strangers. Uh, sometimes it will be our own team turning against us. Uh, most often, the adversaries just come from the circumstances of our lives. They get in the way. They bring us down. They, they create new problems. Now, the reason that Paul... Uh, has to write this chapter that that's all business is, um, is, a, is a lesson to us. We're always going to have to deal with the stuff of life. We don't live in a transcendent realm yet. Uh, we'll, all, uh, we'll find that in this world there are always going to be uh, distractions and hindrances and frustrations and adversaries. I mean, there's a reason why monasteries were built far from cities in, in desolate wilderness areas. It was to get away from all the distractions. But I learned something about monasteries. There were rivalries, there were jealousies, there was bickering, there were strong disagreements, there were personality conflicts. Uh, so you, you can't really escape all of it. You can get away, get away from the television and, um, and social media uh, and the, the busy city life where everything's just thrown at you. Um, but if there's another person nearby, there's a good chance that it's not always going to be hunky-dory. And I, I wonder, uh, God, why can't, why, why couldn't there just be the wide door of effective work. Uh, why do there have to be the adversaries? It just makes everything so much more difficult and, and uh, harder to get done what we really want to get done. But um, there are the adversities because that's where we are needed. Uh, we're needed in the world of distraction and hindrance and frustration. And also because, and this goes hand in glove with what Nancy was saying, also because 
It's adversity that makes our lives a story. Um, you do not have a story if you just have a sequence of events. This happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. You know, I went to the store, I bought some milk, I came home, uh, I, I had cereal, uh, which was the one thing I can do really well in the kitchen, and um, went to bed. And that's, that's not a story. There's nothing. It's a report, perhaps. But adversity gives our lives a plot, builds suspense, creates moments of uncertainty and doubt. And we need all of that to have a life. First of all, it's worth living. That's, that's interesting at all, where everything doesn't go our way. But also, it, it works in us, and it works on us, and it develops and deepens who we are. Um, I read this, this particular chapter last June, and I'll share with you a little bit of my meditation that day. The lesson here is the same one we learned from Jesus' transfiguration. I doubt the disciples ever experienced a fuller revelation of God than on that mountain. But they had to come back down to the mundane world. And there waiting for them was a heated argument and a demon-possessed boy. <laughs> Thank God you don't have that waiting for you at home, right? Uh, well, some of us... <laughs> anyway... Um, we want the new perspective the disciples had, the greater awareness of God's immediate presence, the peace we receive from our conscious connection with a larger reality. But all of that is given us to serve one purpose, to be God's agents of redemption in the world. We need Paul's heavenly vision for sure. How else will we escape our own worldly entanglements? But we also need to take care of business. These closing words of Paul advise us how we are to go about doing that. And how are we to go about doing that? Verse 13. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now, this is the kind of insight we were hoping to find. Well, it's a little bit more on the surface, but these are the practices that can help open to us that dimension that transcends our 4D universe. Be watchful. Jesus taught this to the disciples in critical moments. It wasn't his usual message. But when he talks about the end of that era, that they would need to be watchful or stay awake. It's uh, the same language in the Greek. When they would be in danger of being led astray and many would fall away and betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets would arise and the love of many would grow cold. Matthew 24. And he's saying, stay awake. Then again, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and Judas was at the gate with a crowd armed with clubs and swords, he tells his disciples, stay awake. 
watch, pray. Jesus' message to the church in Sardis was, wake up. It's the same language. Be watchful. And then Paul says in Romans, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So here's where we start. We start with watchfulness, with, with wakefulness. And we've talked before about how uh, most everyone sleeps through their lives. Uh, I had a friend who, who one time uh, told me his older brother, who had graduated from college before my friend and already gotten married and was working out his career uh, living in Irvine, uh, he told my friend Dennis, you know, I don't feel like I'm getting, away, getting anywhere. I just feel like I'm getting older. And, and that's a person who's walking in their sleep, that uh, I, I'm not aware of life. I'm not a, um, aware of enjoying life. Uh, I do enjoyable things. I have laughter. But I'm just not aware of what my life is, uh, its purpose, its significance, its, its meaning. And, and all of that is really important. And, and Paul says you should not be sleeping your way through life. Well, we sleep our way through life because uh, so much of what we do every day is automatic. It, it's habit. We don't have to think about it. How do, we, how do we change that? Well, one way to change it is to pay attention to what you're doing. If you're tying your shoes... Pay attention to how your hands know what to do and just watch your hands do it. Sometimes when I'm writing a sentence and I know what I'm going to say in a sentence, I watch my hand write the words. I don't think about them. I don't think about how they're spelled. My brain already knows that. And I just observe myself writing the sentence. Uh, sometimes I read the same way. I, want, I read being aware of the fact that I'm reading. And then when I do that, I'm looking at the words, and I'm actually reading faster than I normally read, and I'm getting it. I'm comprehending it. I'm not going back you know, every line or every few words saying, well, what did I just read? Um, there's a way to bring awareness into everything that we do, but we have, to, we have to even pay attention to our automatic behavior, our habits, uh, so that we wake up a little bit more to life. Now, the wakefulness that Paul wants is us to wake, awaken to this dimension of God's reality. And Paul has explained that this reality is, is more than our 4D universe, that God's dimension of spirit cannot be seen with the eyes or heard with the ears, and yet it's that dimension that defines the Christian life the Christian experience. Our, our Christian faith is not just what doctrines we believe. Have you ever thought about how shallow that would be? It's not just ideas or propositions or commandments. All of, all of that, for whatever reasons they exist, exists because of an underlying reality 
that, that this universe cannot explain itself, that it comes from, like Paul says, the things that are made were made from things that are not seen. And, and, and though this dimension is hidden from our senses, we can be experientially aware of it. Paul's been trying to get, get us there this whole time, and now he says, wake up, or stay awake, or be watchful. We have to wake ourselves up. Uh, you know, set the alarm or whatever it takes. It's not going to be mom coming in and saying, wake up to God. I mean, it, it was at one time for some of us. Um, but now we have to do this ourselves. And, and I have to remind myself of this every single day. I constantly fall asleep and lose awareness of God's presence. And it really frustrates me, especially when I come back to it and say, sorry, Father, I don't know where I've been. Um, but you are here, and, and usually it's out of need or, or strong desire or, um, or despair uh, that, I, that I remind myself, I need to be aware of my Heavenly Father right now. How can we wake ourselves up? I don't know. <laughs> um, I know that there are a few things that, that work for me. Constantly return to scripture. And when you do listen for what God is speaking to you through it, don't just read the words. Don't just try to understand the passage. There's something there for you in that moment and listen for it. And then as you listen, do something. Uh, pray what you're reading or sing. Or I don't know if, if it helps dance to embody it, uh, maybe bow if, if you don't, if like me, you don't dance. Then walk in nature and remember that mystery is everywhere. Mystery is in beauty. Uh, mystery is in different forms and different colors, different forms of life. And as you do, nurture reverence. One way to nurture reverence is to constantly say, I don't know. I don't know what being fully awake is. I'm, I'm not sure that I've experienced it. I don't know if God is here right now. I know that I am. And I know that eventually I'll wake up to God's presence. I don't know... Sometimes I just sit with God and say, God, I don't know anything. Um, but in my not knowing, I acknowledge that, that he does and that he does wonderful things. Um, and every once in a while, I recover a sense of awe or wonder. It's not unusual for this to happen while I'm with my grandchildren. And, and sometimes it's just them. Or sometimes it's looking at the world through their eyes. Uh, sometimes, I don't know, it's their childlikeness that I just look at the hills and I see them 
differently. And God is present. Acknowledge how you numb your mind, the various diversions that you have that keep you occupied. Um, whether it's watching the news and getting pissed off about that, or um, it's social media, or it's uh, binge watching all your favorite series, uh, or it's, it's a food addiction or whatever. I mean, like we all have to eat, right? But um, know for yourself, what puts me to sleep? How do I keep myself in this, this trance state? So I'm not fully awake. I, I'm not really living my life for myself. I'm living it for someone else, someone else's voice in my head. <clears throat> Do at least one thing every day where you're fully present. And it doesn't really matter what you're doing. Uh, it could occur to you, um, well, forgive the vulgarity, but it could occur to you while you're scratching your butt that, Oh, I could be fully present to this moment. <laughs> and, and if it does, um, it, it doesn't matter what you're doing because God doesn't care what you're doing when he breaks in on you. He, do, he doesn't care that he finds Gideon in a wine press hiding from Philistines. He doesn't care that he finds David watching his sheep. Um, it doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're fully present to it, then you are susceptible to the presence of God, who's always fully present. Or you can ask yourself any time of the day, what am I missing? And then look at everything, because there might be something important that you're missing because you simply did not see it. Most of what interests us is not in our peripheral vision. It's looking straight ahead, and then we miss the majority of that because we're looking at one particular thing, one particular object. But, but look around instead or pay attention to what's in your peripheral vision. And perhaps you'll begin to see differently. And that's what this is all about. So wake up. And then he says, be firm in the faith. When we go down to the beach and wade in the ocean even small waves can move us, and we can lose our balance. Oh, good grief. My, uh, my middle son, Michael, his, he used to take his three kids to the beach, and they'd want to go there in the winter, and I'd say, okay, but no one goes in the water. We're just going to play in the sand. No one goes in the water. And Noah, who is about six or seven at the time, said, Grandpa, can I just roll up my cuffs and get my feet wet? And uh, I'd say no, and he'd argue and plead, and I'd say okay, and he'd roll up his cuffs, and then he'd be getting just his feet wet, and then inevitably he would fall. And then he'd say, oh, I'm falling again. <laughs> and sure enough, he would fall again until he was soaked. And then his brother was soaked too. Fortunately, their little sister was afraid of the water. Um, but we need to, to keep our, our feet planted because the motion of the water coming in and then going out again. 
And we need to also keep our feet planted in the faith, again, because of the alter, alternating currents of life. Faith is what connects us to the mystery. Faith is what gives us spiritual sight. Faith is our spiritual eyes and spiritual ears. And when I go into the water, um, I avoid getting anything that is over my head, at least too far over my head. And to stand firm, you want to be careful of that too. Don't go so deep you get in over your head. Act like men. I really do not like this phrase. Um, it, it conjures memories of my childhood when I was taught real men don't cry. And again, my, my uncle Bill, he owned a body shop in Santa Ana. He uh, raced motorcycles. He was, he was a man's man. And uh, I was in his body shop. I was three years old. And uh, my, my dad was there. We stopped by for some reason. Uh, I think my dad liked hanging out with his, his younger brother. Uh, and Bill's friends liked my dad, too. Well, there's this, um, this hydraulic drill on the floor with um, sand, a sandpaper disc for buffing cars. And I noticed that it had a trigger on it. And no one was paying attention to me, so I pressed that trigger. And because it was uh, circular, it was like a wheel. And the sandpaper wheel just suddenly took off by itself, came around and took off a patch of skin from my leg. And I was in shock. And my uncle quickly ran over to me, put his hands on my shoulders, looked in my face and said, be a man, don't cry. I was three years old. And I'm looking at him like, what the hell? I mean, I didn't actually think that, but um, be a man, don't cry. And I looked and saw all this blood coming out of my leg. I screamed. Um, you know, I don't want to be a man. I want to be a three-year-old and just make the most of this. But he wanted to impress his friends, you know, what a tough little three-year-old I could be. And I wasn't. And I hate my weenie self. Um, uh, I don't want to be that, but sometimes I am. Anyway, the, um, the, this word, act like men, is, is only here in the New Testament. It's found in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. I want to read to you one verse where it's found. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let your heart take courage. It's the same word, and I prefer that. It, it's, courage is a determination to do what needs to be done. Even in the face of danger, difficulty, or discomfort. I'm still going to do this. This is hard. I'm still going to do it. This is painful. I'm still going to do it. That's courage. And everyone displays courage over 
you know, one thing or another. And there are different degrees of courage. And I think some people have more courage than others. And then some people are just stupidly courageous. Um, that's, that's your type T personality, the thrill seeker, who um, will do the most outrageous things, uh, come as close to death as they can, because that is what makes them feel alive. Uh, all those endorphins, all that good dopamine and serotonin rushing through their veins, making them crazier and crazier until their eyes bug out. But um, each one of us will have to find our own way to to take courage. Uh, and I find that the courage of others oftentimes inspires me. You know, the, the people with severe physical disabilities who are able to do things that uh, amaze me. How can this man with no arms and no legs swim across a pool? And yet I'm watching him doing it on YouTube and I'm amazed and that courage to, to live a full life with no arms and no legs, um, is a, it inspires me. He says, be strong. Paul is not saying be muscular, be aggressive, be abrasive. Uh, it's not that kind of strength. My nine-year-old grandson, Caleb, uh, a few weeks ago was in a discussion with some of his friends at school, and, and they were... They were talking about muscularity, and they were comparing their four-packs. <laughs> Not six-packs, mind you. Uh, nine years old, they're four-packs. Uh, and, and Paul's not talking about that. And his, his prayer for the Ephesians was that uh, Paul prayed that God, according to the riches of his glory, may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that you may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and be filled with the fullness of God. But, you know, whatever that means, that's the kind of strength he wants them to have. And, and that kind of strength, well, it's like the deep roots of a tree. It's, it's a strength that, that good health gives us to have stamina. It's the strength that supports courage. Then he says, let all that you do be done in love. We have heard, I think most of us have heard, that if you cannot say something nice about someone else, that's right, come sit next to me. Um, <laughs> That, that's a twisted version of it. If you cannot say something nice about someone else, then say nothing at all. But Paul goes way beyond that, doesn't he? Uh, first of all, it's not just what you have to say, but it's in all that we do. And secondly, the alternative is not, if you can't do something nice for someone else, don't do anything. There's no alternative to doing all things in love. Jesus said, so whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. You've heard this, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's called the golden rule. But Jesus did not call it the golden rule. He called it the narrow gate. 
And he said, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The way of love is not the easiest path through life. It turns out to be the best, but it's not the, the easiest. Do all things in love. If Christianity fails at love, it is a total failure. It doesn't matter what else we do. We can cover the world with gospel tracts. We can send messages of the gospel all over the world. It doesn't matter. If we fail at love, Christianity is a total failure. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. Every once in a while, in our Lectio Divina meetings, everyone will talk at once. Uh, This happened this last week. Now, we're meeting electronically, so it's a mess of noise when everyone starts talking at once. No one is heard. Um, But it's also a joyful sound because it only happens when everyone is expressing their love for one individual. And every once in a while, there's one person who um, says, well, they, they say something about themselves that they see as a flaw or a weakness And immediately, everyone's talking, um, telling them, you know, but I don't see that weakness. Uh, I don't see that flaw. Or or that's what makes you wonderful. Or this this last week, this one person said, well, I'm not articulate. And immediately, everyone's talking, saying, you are articulate. You're so articulate. And then she started to talk again. And she could not put two sentences together. She said, oh, it's because you told me I'm articulate. I can't do it now. Uh, She was trying too hard. She's articulate when she doesn't try. But but this is it. When, When all of a sudden we're all activated to express love, we are being our true selves in Christ. When we're doing all things in love, we are being our true selves in Christ. When we are doing all things in love, Jesus is revealing himself to us. Verse 19, um, the churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and uh, Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Aquila and Priscilla, we're familiar with them from the book of Acts and other places, uh, Romans 16 and so on. Uh, And what does Paul say about them? They send their greetings them and the church that is in their house. Uh, They opened up their home for uh, Christian meetings, for for prayer and worship and getting into the scriptures together. If Paul or one of the other apostles came through or another Christian teacher came through, their house was open and people would gather there. And I admit I'm interpreting this verse out of context when I say this, but is there a church in your home Is there a church in your house, a a specific place where you meet God? 
you know, some of the wealthier people in Europe, and even here in the States, will have a chapel somewhere in their home. Um, most of them have been converted into entertainment centers, but it used to be a, a chapel, and they'd have a cross, uh, and uh, they would go there and sit with God. Do you have your own little chapel space where you like to be? It, it may be outside on the patio or wherever. Is there a space where you invite others to, to come and to share together your life in God and to, to talk about the things of God? Well, I'll leave you to explore that question for yourself. What could that mean for you to have church in your house? Verse 23, and with this he closes the letter. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Grace is the key that opens every door for us. God's grace makes possible everything that for us is impossible. That's what grace is. His grace fills the gap between where I am and where I could be if I, if I tried harder. If I compare myself to other people, I think, man, if they had the gifts that God's given me, they'd be a lot further along than I am. But grace in my life fills that gap of where I am and where I could be. And, and God meets me where I am in grace. And, and he's, he's kind about it. He doesn't say, you know, you could have gotten an A+. Plus. <laughs> you know, you could have won that race, just a little bit more effort. He never says anything like that. Because he, he comes to me in grace. Now, now grace is not like God's spirit. It's, grace is not an energy or a power. Rather, it's God's attitude toward us. And it's what he extends to us. It's, it's his joy in giving us everything we do not deserve. Everything we have not earned, we cannot earn. It's his joy in, in loving us through and through. And when I sit with God in prayer, sometimes I just give him a long list of reasons why he should not love me and why I don't believe he can love me, why I believe it's impossible for him to love me. And, and his grace burns the list cuts it into pieces. And he says, that's all nonsense. That's, that's not who I am. It's not what I am. And I do love you. Not because of anything in you, but because of what I am. It's, everything's in me. All of his reasons for loving us are found in himself. For, for that reason, he can't help but love us. I mean, you know, I'm saying that anthropomorphically, but it still means the same thing. The grace of Jesus is what does all these things for us. It wakes us up. 
this other realm. It, it helps us to stand firm. It makes us strong. It uh, enables us to love and to do all things in love. And it enables us to walk through that narrow gate. Would you stand with me, please? May God shower you with his grace this week. May you have the courage to indulge in it. May it lift you up, even as guilt, like gravity, has brought you down. May guilt lift, pardon me, may grace lift you up. May the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.